Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. This series is sponsored by Long Thread Media, publishers of Spinoff, Piecework, and Handwoven magazines. Find us online and subscribe at longthreadmedia.com. I'm your host, co-founder Anne Marrow. I'm here with Penelope Hemingway, who's a historian uh, with a specialty in material culture. Welcome. Hello. It's nice to be here. So you've written some really fascinating articles, especially for Piecework Magazine, about the Bronte sisters and their connection with needlework. How did you get interested in that? Well, right from being 16 at school in England, you do some, we did something called O-Levels. When you're 14, 16, your first big public exams you do. And one of my set texts was Wuthering Heights. And I just got obsessed in that way teenage girls... I think often do identify particularly with Emily Bronte. And then it just stayed, just a a lifelong love. I did English literature at university and I love 19th century literature so much that I didn't do it at university because I thought if I study it, it'll kill it. So I just stayed interested and I didn't kill my love for it because I didn't actually study it. Um, But later on, I just carried on reading, so I just read and read and read and read. And living about 30 miles from Haworth, we we get up there quite a lot and we have done our whole lives. So we know it well. And for people who are, you know, who are just readers of the Brontes, thinking about it through the lens of material culture and needlework is something that I hadn't looked at before. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was probably my way in because I almost wanted an excuse to write about the Brontes. And so marrying up that love of needle crafts and making things um, with the Brontes seemed like a really good get-in. So I could start researching on the ground and uh, I'd have an excuse to go up there <laughs> because I could write about something that I loved and understood. And not many other people have written about that. The Brontes are so heavily studied and written about and loved that it's hard to find a new way in or a new way to think about them. So for me, the material culture was a way into to my sort of literary interest in them. And I felt I could contribute something a bit more original and new because it was something I had a fair grasp of, I felt, like 19th century textiles in particular. So I could marry up my love of textiles with my love of the Brontes, and it was just a natural fit. So where does your love of 19th century textiles come from? Oh, living history, right from the late 1970s, we were involved in, my husband and I were involved in living history. It started off as reenactment. And then um, as time went on, we realised we were more interested in domestic life than battles and kings and that sort of history. So we started studying domestic history because we'd then have something we could authentically portray. And so I was looking for a craft or an art or something I could learn that would be typical for a woman in the 1640s. And so that's how I got into weaving and then spinning and dyeing and everything else came after that. So for a long time, we did it for living history and eventually we did different periods. So we do Viking, we do 1800s, we do Anglo-Saxons, we do medieval people and we still do 1640s occasionally but always through that lens of textiles, making and doing, doing something pragmatic. So I was one of the first people in England that was walking around spinning on a spindle at Living History events. Now 
it's universal, but um, when I did it, nobody was doing it because we just happened to be there right at the start of the movement where people realised, you know what, we don't want to talk about kings and battles. We want to talk about how ordinary people lived all the time, what they ate, what they wore, what they did. So that's what we did. And you finished a book called... Old Handnitters of the Dales was originally written, well, published in 1951 by two ladies, two Yorkshire ladies, Joan Ingleby and Mary Hartley. And the ladies were historians with a passion for Yorkshire history, real specific local history. Uh, neither of them were knitters, but they ended up researching and writing the most, probably the most, one of the most classic books on knitting history in the UK. I got a chance to work on this book because I found out that the rights to it lapsed and that we got hold of the rights to it and we, we managed to bring it out again. But this time tried to, I wrote an introduction to it so we could give context to the ladies and say this is what they did, this is who they were. And they wrote over 30 books on Yorkshire history and became um, very, very well regarded they had that sort of literary feel to them as well. They, they were good researchers, good writers, and Mary was also the illustrator of the books. And they were document. They lived in the Dales, and they were documenting this dying way of life. That by 1949, when the book was commissioned, they were seeing people knitting in the old way, but that was really dying out. It was really elderly people, and they felt if they didn't start collecting the artifacts and documenting what people were doing with knitting in the Dales, it would die out. Because although knitting and textiles generally in the whole of Britain had been very, very mechanised, right back to the 1780s, in Yorkshire we continued, in the remoter parts like the Yorkshire Dales, we continued knitting by hand. Um, and they got up to speeds that were comparable with the speeds that a machine could reach because they were using all sorts of little technologies like knitting sticks, um, sometimes called knitting sheaths. And that was then dying out by the 1940s and 50s. These elderly people were um, the last of their generation. They were dying out. So the ladies decided to go and document it. So this book, when it was published for years and years by a big Yorkshire publisher called Dalesman. And when Dalesman, um, the ladies died, the, the rights lapsed and uh, we managed to track down who had the rights and managed to bring the book out. So we brought out an intro with history and a background about the women but also we found one of the gloves that they documented one of the Dales gloves now these gloves were knitted in their hundreds of thousands for decades and decades but maybe over a hundred years but there was only four I think it's 13 or 14 gloves extant in our world and there was a pair up at Dove Cottage in Cumberland uh, which is a county above Yorkshire towards Scotland that Mary and Joan had documented in 1949, 1950, and so we found those, and I went into the museum and the back room and documented them, and subsequently we brought out a pattern that I worked on with a couple of people who were more expert knitters than, than I am, um, and we brought out um, the book again, but this time with the added um, context for the women uh, who wrote the book and also with the pattern in the back one of the appendices. So that was sort of like the first sort of really big knitting book we were involved with. And I, I love it to this day, that book. I think the, the women that wrote it did such a brilliant job. And accidentally, when I was in the reserve collection of the Yorkshire Dales Museum up in Hawes, 
there was a man in the back room with me also researching and he started um he pulled out um a ukulele or something and he began playing folk songs and so I got talking to him and he was doing what I was doing with the knitting and trying to find out about the old knitting culture he was doing with the folk music and we got chatting and he said oh you're researching Mari and Joan I was their neighbor for years and he literally was their next door neighbor and I stumbled into the archive on the very day he'd stumbled in as a singer and folk singer he was researching something different but we got chatting and so I got loads of really good background information about ladies because I actually stumbled on their neighbour when I was doing the research. And this is the joy of going in these archives and these uh, reserve collections and museums, you, the people you meet and the stories you get. And some of that stuff was stuff we couldn't put in the introduction to the book because it was sort of, um, I wouldn't say racy, but it was it, it was certainly the sort of stuff we couldn't put in the, the intro of the book. But it gave you a great insight into these very literary ladies who were very well connected and total characters, absolute forces of nature. They were brilliant women. And so I was trying to not just get the book back out, but we were trying to give a context for it. So these are the people that wrote it. Um, particularly women writers in the 1940s and 50s were still fairly um, not as visible uh, as men. This book was commissioned in 1949, but it sat on the publisher's desk for over two years, uh, partly because of post-war paper shortages in England, but also partly because um, they were more interested in publishing books on pig rearing and things like that. And so this classic, classic, brilliant book on knitting history nearly didn't exist because the publisher was a man with male interests. And uh, so, you know, I was very keen to to put it where it belonged. Uh, and Mary in particular was a slave school qualified artist. So she's a top end, top end artist. And her work needed, to, we, we felt, needed to be recognised more. So um, it was partly Yorkshire history and partly the love of knitting and textiles. It does seem like the history of, of Yorkshire has a special place for you, whether it's people who are known on an international scale like the Brontes or women who, who wrote an important but less known book. What do you think it is about Yorkshire? Is it just that it's your place or, or do you find special things there? It's both. I think I, I lived in America briefly and people used to say to me that knew that Yorkshire is like the soft. Texas is like the Yorkshire of America. People from certain places have very strong cultural identity with that place, and it's hard to explain. But I grew up in a village 20-odd, 30-odd miles from uh, Haworth, and so as a 16-year-old reading about these girls, it was talking about places I knew, and it was all very familiar. It's partly that cultural thing as well, that Yorkshire people have a very strong identity compared to some other regions of England. It's the biggest county, and so we've always been very self-contained. And as a genealogist as well, I found out I was almost 100% Yorkshire, which is almost impossible if you come from another county in England because the other counties are so much smaller. But our borders are so far apart in, in English terms uh, that people can, generations and generations, can come from the same county and the same culture. But that's very parochial. And beyond that, I was always very keen that it was a shared, it's world heritage, it's a shared thing. It belongs to all of us. And so someone from inside it, you can talk about it with a certain level of authority. But 
also as someone from inside it, you want to share it with people. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to everybody. And I always felt very passionately. I was after a readership that wasn't just just English or just Northern English. So although I'm a lot of my research is here, another reason for that is just a sheer financial thing. Of I could travel all over England, but it would cost me a lot, whereas I can travel over the north of England, going all these museums up here, and I can afford to do that more often. And it's that practical thing of if you're going into archives, you can't do it superficially, so you need to go back and back and back and spend hours and hours and hours. So I couldn't be doing that in London, where I don't live, but I could be doing that realistically here. So it's really pragmatic. But also, like I said, we do have a very strong, strong identity. And I like talking about it from the inside, you know, because I like to hear about other people's cultures from the inside. It cuts both ways. And your website is called The Knitting Genealogist. I was curious about that. Yeah, it's, I don't know why that started. And I've sort of moved on from just genealogy. I do lots of other history, but that's sort of stuck. But at first I used to write articles about a knitted item or a person in a photograph who was knitting and I would use my genealogy to trace that person so I'd find an obscure mention of a person from 1790 and I'd go find them and I'd see a picture in a book about say a Cornish knitter to get away from Yorkshire for a bit and you'd get the name and you'd see the jumper or the gansey or whatever in the photograph and I was curious about well who might have knitted that you know and I'll go find this family and find out who the likely knitter is and often on an old census, women would even be described as knitter or hand knitter. So you could very likely find the person that knitted something, even with just the wearer's name. Um, and I felt like these are works of art. And because partly it's a feminist thing, but the, again, because they're women, they're anonymous. And so I wanted to try and give them their names back and put the names back out there. So I used all those genealogical skills I'd acquired elsewhere to try and connect these pieces of art or the record of them, the photos of them, with the woman usually that, that knitted them. And I just felt like all these things are anonymous that we knit. And it's so cool to, if you can find anything historical and connect it to the person who made it and maybe find out something about their lives. So it's really just trying to give back identities to people. You know, and I'm thinking about how you, you know, stumbled into a, an archive and, and met a neighbor of, of these authors, but how um, these archives preserve all of these, uh, whether it's textiles or, or books or whatever, and they're kind of waiting for somebody like you to come along and uh, find the stories in them. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I was a teacher for a long time before I, I got into this. So sort of spreading information is what teachers do. It's almost compulsive. And the fact that I was stuck at home for a long time and couldn't work because my son was disabled. So I thought, well, I've always wanted to have a go at writing, so I'll have a go at it. And I had the time, if not the money, I had the time to do it. So um, I'll, I'll do it. In fact, Charlotte Bronte said this. She said, if I'm interested in something, someone else out there might be. And so I'm going to write about things to please myself because... If I like it, somebody else might like it. And that always stuck with me, that idea. So I'm going to go root around in these archives and I find something that I think is really cool. And it might be weird, but if I think it's cool, there's enough other weird people out there that find the same stuff cool. And sure enough, there were, you know, that I could go and find this stuff and that people out there loved it. 
as much as I loved it. And if I'd have been the only person out there, never found readers that liked the same stuff, I'd have carried on because I loved it so much. And you mentioned that you, your interests have kind of gone beyond genealogy, but your interests have also gone beyond knitting. Yeah, um, I was always, again, from living history, I always had a massive interest in textiles generally. So, yeah, it was a bit of a no-brainer, really, to start looking at other things. And I think you start, I started out as a spinner because spinning was accessible. It was something I could do without spending too much money. It was something I could get a real hold on. But I really wanted to learn to weave. And eventually I learned to weave and I learned to dye and all the things we learned from spin-off and piecework and old magazines that I've read for years. I just wanted to sort of take that further. And I started, again, in archives, you see bits of costume, or I would go in to research, um, say, a, a glove, and someone would say, oh, while you're here, can you have a look at this? And they'd pull something out and show you it and ask if you had an opinion about it, or they might ask you to try and date it or whatever. And so I started thinking, I've seen some really cool stuff here that, but that isn't knitted that I can't write about when I'm just writing about knitting. So I sort of slowly expanded out to all the other things that I was interested in because, again, if I'm interested in it, other people might be. Particularly the Brontes, I've been several times, more than several times, to the reserve collection, the stuff the public doesn't see, or it, it gets rotated and in, into exhibition, but it's not always there, all of it. And the stuff you start to see, it's absolutely fascinating I think somebody showed me some Bronte stockings and you forget that other people don't know what they're looking at necessarily and they say, oh, what can you tell us about these? And at the time I was sort of fairly gutted because this this Bronte underwear that no one ever gets to see, that I got to not only see but have in my hand, it's machine made. And, and, and the sort of spinner and knitter and everything in me sort of, oh, I wish this was homemade. But now I'm, I'm interested in the history of those machines as well. So, you know, that, that's something I'll go back and look at again because as my interests keep expanding and I keep learning more new stuff, I can go back with a bit more of an informed mind and look at that, that again. The same in the Dells Museum. There are the gloves we've seen in books and we can find online, but they have the odd pair in there that are so faded if it's two-colour knitting Maybe it's pink on cream, and maybe the pink is pre-aniline dye, so it fade, it's faded. And so they're not really great for them to exhibit because they just look like cream, plain cream gloves. But in a certain light or close-up, you can see the fair isle pattern that's still there in them, but you've got to sort of, like, be very lucky. And so things like that that I've got to see that don't go on display because of the way um, the, the way they've deteriorated or because they're seen as, well, somebody's boring old white, machine knitted stockings aren't particularly interested are interesting you know we've still got charlotte's wedding bonnet or we've still got um, something else you know something more interesting the bronte's war but uh, sometimes that weird obscure stuff actually is almost more interesting because that doesn't just tell us about the brontes that tells us about women generally at that period and what they what they wore the less visible sort of side of their their clothing what they wore that nobody probably ever saw same with looking at I've seen a few textiles from asylums, inmates' work, and that's fascinating because I saw this fabulous embroidery by a, an inmate called Lorena Bulwer, and she'd embroidered this massive rant. It was literally maybe 10 metres long. It, it took up the whole library. They had to unroll it for me across all the library tables, and this stuff is hard to display. 
but it's there. And she used everyday textiles because she's in an asylum. She uses old bits of stocking or whatever comes to hand to embroider on. So to me, that was fascinating because I can see these really work a day. Uh, to some people, boring textiles, but they're things that everybody had and everybody used. And they've almost just worn to death and thrown away or recycled. So, I mean, a lot of linen, to get onto what we'll be talking about in a bit, a lot of linen was recycled into paper. So it would eventually just be virtually rotting and falling apart, and then it'd be torn up and, and processed into paper, nice nice linen paper. So a lot of the, even things like the Bronte's writing, if it's on linen paper, it's on, if you think about it, it's on somebody's underwear, basically. We know, we never think of that, do we? But it's true. Um, it's an everyday material. So we, again, material culture, material history, and just the fabrics and textiles and even things like paper, dyes, inks, it's all fascinating to me because it's everyday stuff, not the silk things or the fancy things necessarily that get into the display case, but the stuff that is every, everybody's everyday life. That's the textiles I love. And you also um, have an interest in null bending, and I, and I believe you, you teach it as well. So that is pretty far back from the, the Brontes. That's Vikings. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, absolutely. Um, yeah, we do a lot of Viking living history. My husband is actually a professional Viking. He works at Danelaw, um, so he's usually a Viking or an Anglo-Saxon in York with school parties. So it's practical. He's out all winter, needs a Viking hat. I had to learn how to do nail binding, which sometimes turns up in books as a sort of precursor to knitting. And in some ways it is, and in other ways it isn't. It's a way of connecting loops of yarn, but it's not a continuous loop like knitting, not continuous yarn like knitting. So, yeah, the living history means I'd stray into different areas, and often I'm a bit of a magpie, so I learn something and really get into it, and then I'll teach lots of other people as well, because that's kind of what I'm, again, as a former teacher, that's what I'm all about, if I can convert people. But as a spinner and dyer, now binding was, to me, brilliant because it uses up so many odds and ends I can't otherwise easily use up. So it's quite practical. It's incredibly slow. <laughs> but it doesn't ravel, right? That's one of the, it, that's one of the good yeah. things. It doesn't run. I, I forgot that, yeah. It doesn't run. No, it's fine. It's, um, you can do horrific things to it and, and it'll survive. I also use it now as darning on knitted things because... But the problem with that is it's stronger than the knitting that surrounds it. So then your knitting will carry on wearing out, but your nail binding will still be nice and immaculate. So it's so good. It's almost too good. <laughs> now, how did you learn to spin? Taught myself in the 80s from books. Spin off as well. I, I can't remember. I think it was maybe one or two library books. And there was no other way. Now I'd be on YouTube because I'm more of a visual learner and it's hard to learn spinning from books and written sources, I think, for some people. For other people, it's ideal. For me, it was hard. But I just had to do it somewhere around about, I can't remember, but mid-80s. We were asked by a council down south to build a village, a 17th century village, and live in it for a while. And I thought, well, I've got to have a craft, I've got to have a skill. So if I, I learned, that was one reason I learned to spin. So I could walk around spinning and look like I was doing something authentic and then the public can talk to you about it. It's a way into talking about costume and clothing. But of course, as we all know, spinning's quite addictive and you, then you get into it and then you want a spinning wheel and then you want a faster spinning wheel and it just goes on and on. And then, well, I've got 
so much yarn I'm going to have to learn to weave. So one thing leads to another with, and, and another thing is as a, as a teacher, I always, every year I try to learn a new skill because when you're teaching, you forget how hard it is to, to pick up something new. And if you're constantly challenging yourself and constantly learning a new skill, then you constantly remember that state of learning, which makes you a better teacher is what I was taught anyway. So it's um, always con- always expanding, always learning new things because that way I'm a better teacher than if I stick with what I think I know. So what are you working on for handwork now? At the moment, I'm talking of new things. I've, I've got a 100-year-old circular sock machine, an English one from a factory that closed down a few years ago. They're getting very hard to get, although there are, I think there's three manufacturers I know that are now making them, but their old ones are getting very hard to get. So I got the chance to have one, so I got one. And I'm teaching myself, and that is a learning curve that makes nail-binding look like a walk in the park. I thought nail-binding was the hardest thing I've ever taught myself, but this is a lot more demanding, but at the same time, just as much fun and rewarding. So, um, yeah, so now I'm interested in machine-knitted things because I'm looking at them with new eyes. And I must say, going back to the old hand-knitters for a minute, old hand-knitters are the girls, men and women, uh, knitted commonly, if you think that a circular sock machine was invented in something like the 1870s, people in the Dells are still hand-knitting stockings at that time and still making a living hand-knitting. So it tells you how fast these knitters are. And once you start using a sock machine, you realise, I can knit most of a leg in 10 minutes. And yet there are people in the Dells and other parts in Wales and other parts of Britain and probably across the world, knitting stockings by hand still and still competing with those machines. And to me, that makes me appreciate them even more. So learning something new gives you a new perspective on something you thought you knew a fair bit about. Well, and with the with the knitting, the sock knitting machine, there's there's the parts that you can go around and around very quickly. But then learning how to do the the heels and toes and ribbing or anything like that, it's it's a, almost a whole new skill. It's horrendous. Yeah, I've I've spent the last month sobbing <laughs> over heels, redoing them, learning patience as well, because you forget when you've been turning out hand knitted socks with different sorts of heel and doing all sorts of fancy things for years and years, and you forget how it is to learn something like that and you appreciate how far you've come in the hand knitting that you can do the stuff you can do but yeah it's very it's very demanding and people again I mean often very young people did this from a young age and did it immaculately it does make you appreciate things that are made whether they're made by machine or by a pair of hands uh, anything textile related it makes you appreciate it even more if you learn how to do a new thing and then a new thing and another new thing. Tell me about your most recent book. My most recent book is Their Darkest Materials, which we worked on up till last year. What happened was I was researching about mainly knitting for for magazines and things I was writing, and I kept finding these fantastic stories that we couldn't use that were about other textiles. So I thought, we'll broaden this out and we'll write about some other things. But also I kept finding lots of dark stuff, tragedies, uh, disasters. The number of murders you find in the 19th century in England anyway, in Scotland, where people are knitting when they're murdered. I mean, I just kept finding these stories. And these are brilliant, and I can't shoehorn these into anything I ever write. So I started saving all the good stories, and eventually we got this idea of writing about the darker side of material culture. So the cost of things being machine-made in factories, the people that uh, literally died making very ordinary things, 
the poverty. And we came across things like epidemics in um, carpet weaving areas where people lived in tenements and all of them would work in one factory. And when something like cholera hits, it goes right through the whole factory. And this idea of people like we're getting now with the epidemic, people who are socially disadvantaged or disadvantaged in some other way, are hit disproportionately by epidemics and things. And so the more we researched, the more we found, the more sort of onerous it was, the more sort of scary. But on the other hand, I think you look at an exquisite Scottish paisley woven shawl and you see its obvious artistry and its beauty, all the rest of it. But when you read about the conditions the weavers were expected to live in and the wages they were on and the difficulty of their life, I I thought it was worth writing about that side as well. So we have a chapter on murder, a chapter on factories and child labour and things like that. And we uh, we cover various different things throughout the book about the sort of darker side of material culture. And ironically, on the day we launched it, on March the 1st, I went down with COVID, but literally on the day we launched the book, which is quite opposite (laughs) in the end. (laughs) But um, certainly there's a second book on the way. It's popular. People are enjoying it, um, if that's the right word. And we found a lot of obscure history that if we'd not been looking for it, we wouldn't have found. But we're particularly proud of some of the stuff we did find and try to bring to light about um, things like child labour. If we look at these exquisite old textiles, or I do, I hold them in my hands in museums. I don't just see them through a display case. And you realise how fabulous they are. And then you see this whole second side of the way that people had to live that made them. And it's very sad, but I think it's also something we should talk about. You say we worked on it. Do you work on that with with your husband? I did. Well, he illustrated it, but he comes with me when I do all the research. He drives me about. He talks about things. He sometimes spends time in the archives with me and because if we're looking at a lot of, say, 18th century documents and I've got a limited amount of time there, we need to cover a lot of it. So he'll, he'll do some and I'll do some and then we'll talk about it later. And uh, so we see it as a joint thing. We do, well, we did until covid travel around England when we could, talking about it. And he's a much better talker than I am. He's a much better speaker. He's very entertaining and funny. So um, it's a we because it's a joint thing that we both do. So you use the word material culture. And I think I might infer what that means, but, but maybe you could explain. It means looking at history, but through the lens of objects, material things, items. So... Again, in terms of the Brontes, I forgot the name of the author, but there's a brilliant book called The Bronte Cabinet by an American historian. But it looks at about eight or nine objects in the collection at the Bronte Parsonage. And she looks at things like the women's writing desks. And there'll be a whole chapter on writing desks and it'll give you the background, the history. But while she's doing that, you learn a lot just generally about 19th century history, why people sort of craved privacy and had and wrote in little boxes with locks, you know. And from our point of view as needleworkers, things like work boxes. Now, again, when I've been to Parsonage, I've looked at, not gone to look at, but they've said, oh, you're here, have a look at this. Um, work boxes. I think it was Charlotte's work box I saw. You can go online and see the stuff at the Parsonage and the Reserve Collection. Much of it is photographed and documented online, and, and anybody can go look at this stuff. And somewhere on there, there's Charlotte's workbox contents. 
Um, but I saw them in the workbox, I seem to remember. And there's just things like linen thread and little bits of leftover lace from something she was doing. Her knitting needles, now, they were about, for the knitters out there, they were about one millimetre looking at them. So they're fine needles, six to eight inches, um, probably gloves or stockings, but bent, which immediately told me she was using a knitting stick. And, of course, another trip to Barsonage, we documented all the knitting sticks, and there's several. Uh, again, you can go see these online. It's very accessible. One of them had the monogram MB on, so we think they were Mariah Brontes, the Bronte sisters' mothers. Mariah came to Yorkshire from Cornwall, and Cornish people, like Yorkshire people, had a very strong hand-knitting tradition. We share that. So she came up here, and all of her stuff nearly was lost in a shipwreck because her stuff was literally shipped up from Cornwall to Yorkshire about 1811-ish, around about that time. But this knitting stick had clearly survived, which, which told us that almost everything in the world she brought from Cornwall was, was lost, but the knitting stick's still there. We felt they'd come from Cornwall because there was a couple there, and one of them was tin, and in Cornwall there are tin mines. It's not so common in Yorkshire. So um, we felt that she'd brought her knitting and her knitting sticks, and that was so important she'd had it on her whereas the other stuff was lost in the shipwreck. So um, that was fascinating to look at the vintage sticks, to compare them, to measure them, to document them. And we decided most of them had belonged to Mariah, but the Bronte sisters must have used them because, um, like I said, Charlotte's needles were bent, which would happen if you were lodging your, your needle, your working needle in a, a knitting stick. That would just inevitably happen probably over time. Also in the Dells, people wanted bent needles. They would actually buy what they call wires. They'd buy them bent because they felt they could knit faster with a bent needle. But these looked like they'd been accidentally bent. Well, if I were going on a on a journey to a new place, I would want my knitting needles and my and my yeah. yarn as well. And isn't that fabulous? It tells us that their mum must have been quite a keen knitter to make sure a knitting was on a person and that we can tell that and that they carried on after she died, presumably using what some of her knitting sticks maybe got their own as well. That's so interesting. Um, and that is what material culture is. It tells you about a bit more about people's everyday lives. And that's what we're really, really interested in, just documenting how people lived and what they did. Well, thanks so much for taking us along with you to these archives and through all these stories. No problem. I look forward to seeing what you what you work on next. No, I'm sure I'm coming up with something good, yeah. We're working on darkest materials too as we speak and we've got lots of interesting articles coming out. I've gone everywhere from 1640s to the uh, 1900s recently in my writing, so it's something for everybody. It's a wonderful journey. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Long Thread Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again.